Lord, meet us in this text. Speak to us in a season that counterintuitively is often filled with so much busyness and noise. Quiet our hearts. We want to hear from you this morning. Speak to us through your word, by your spirit, for Jesus' sake. Amen. I'll be home for Christmas. You can plan on me. Please have snow and mistletoe and presents on the tree. Christmas Eve will find me where the love light gleams. I'll be home for Christmas, if only in my dreams. It's not surprising when you hear those words to discover that American soldiers in World War II requested this song from Bing Crosby, I'll Be Home for Christmas, more than any other song during the holidays each year that they were stuck on the other side of an ocean. And the song was actually written from the perspective of a homesick soldier. Some of you have heard me share this story before. By May of 1945, Germany was finally defeated, but there was this funny dynamic at play about 12 million American men and women in active duty, 9 million of them were still stuck overseas. The war was over, but they weren't home yet. 9 million people waiting to go home in the season of Advent. Advent comes from the Latin and means coming or arrival, as we've been reminding you this month. It's a season in the church calendar where we examine ourselves. Each year, we take the opportunity to prepare our hearts to better wait for Christ's second coming. It's a season of the year where we remind ourselves that though the war is already won, we're not home yet. And for most of us, Christmas is closely tied to this idea of home, going home, or maybe for the first time ever in our lives, making something that feels like a home, feeling at home in the home we're in. And we're not always really sure if home is more of a place or a feeling, or maybe a little bit of both, but the longing is unmistakable, and it's common to all of us in this room. Home has this ability to conjure up memories, real ones or imagined ones of firesides and family and friends and belonging and being known and welcomed, being prepared for and thought of. It's interesting how at Thanksgiving, it's relatively easy to add another chair to the table, but it's a much bigger deal to invite somebody over for Christmas because it involves cost and planning and usually personalized gifts. In our culture, an invitation to Christmas is a lot more intimate and significant and costly. And it's probably because of everything that we're considering here in this moment. It's this time of trying to create, even at great expense, a little bit of a sense of otherworldly promise and delight and wonder, what we sometimes call the Christmas spirit. And we spend a lot of money and time and energy and emotion in our culture trying to conjure up and capture the spirit of Christmas. So here in Isaiah 9, here in these seven verses, I want us to consider together three feelings that often kill the Christmas spirit and what we can do about that. Three feelings that often kill the Christmas spirit. The first feeling that often kills the Christmas spirit for a lot of us is the feeling of homelessness. 
the feeling of homelessness. Now, I don't want to make light of that word or that concept because there's actually some of us here today that are battling physical homelessness and the crushing weight that that brings, particularly in this season of the year. But what's so stunning is that even if we manage to finally alleviate our homelessness on the outside, we're often surprised to find that it can still persist on the inside. You can still end up feeling untethered, unknown, disconnected, like you don't really belong anywhere, like you're an outsider. You feel alone even in crowds. You feel, in some sense, that you can't quite explain, displaced. So it's fitting that Isaiah begins in verse 1 by talking about the gloom and anguish that the old covenant people of God are feeling due to being sent into exile away from their home. And for those of you who don't know who he was, Isaiah was a prophet. And God's old covenant people, Israel, were led by kings and priests and prophets. And if God set up kings to administer the covenant relationship between him and his people, he set up prophets to provide correction for that covenant relationship. Even the best king that Israel ever had, David, when he ruled justly, he was helping God's people not forget God's law, and he was helping God's people live in light of his law. But even David needed Nathan to confront him when he began living out of line with God's covenant. And now Isaiah's been sent by God to bring correction to a whole string of kings, and all of them are way below the standard set by David. So what's Isaiah talking about here in verse 1 of chapter 9 when he offers this encouragement that someday there's going to be no gloom for her who was in anguish? Well, all you got to do is back up one chapter to chapter 8, and you discover that the people of God have become so fearful by all the things that threaten their sense of safety in the world that they're even attending seances, something completely forbidden in God's law, and they're trying to find light in the dark. If you have a Bible, you can follow along with me back in chapter 8, starting in verse 16. Notice what Isaiah says. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? (laughs) To the teaching and to the testimony. If they won't speak according to this word, Isaiah says, it's because they have no dawn. They'll pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they'll look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So Isaiah says, God's people are lost, verse 22. They're looking to the earth to find some sense of security, and they're coming up empty. 
And this is true for us, particularly in this season when there's so many temptations, so many false promises about what's going to bring that Christmas spirit. A little more money, just a few more presents under the tree to give our kids what we didn't have growing up. Maybe the praise of our peers or the approval of our parents, the ever-elusive approval of our parents, or just a little more ease and comfort, just a few Minutes, please, of uninterrupted peace and quiet. Maybe tired parents wishing if I could just go to the bathroom alone, right? Maybe a few pounds less or a few wrinkles less or a new phone or a new car or a new ideology, winning the acceptance of those people or breaking into that friend group, which reminds me of John 6, where we're told many who considered themselves Jesus' disciples, began to find his teaching too hard, and so they left. And then Jesus turns to his 12 closest followers, and he says, are you leaving too? To which Peter underwhelmingly replied, the king of affirmation, I mean, where are we gonna go? You have the words of life. Not so much a ringing cry of affirmation as an admission, he didn't really have any other options, right? Where else are we gonna go? Following Jesus is hard, but the alternatives, Isaiah is saying, are much, much worse. Looking to the earth will leave us, like God's old covenant people, in gloom and anguish. And this gloom and anguish that Isaiah is describing is hanging over God's old covenant people. It's both an expression of their anger at God and a symbol for the brokenness of all the things that they've sought false refuge in. And so God says, In chapter 8 and here in chapter 9, I'm going to take you out of your homeland. Yeah, the homeland I promised you. I'm going to send you into exile for seeking false refuge. And I'm going to send you into exile not just for that, but I'm going to send you into exile for your persistent injustice against the poor and the widowed. But then at the same time, confusingly, I'm sure for Isaiah, Isaiah says, hey, I've got a name. God says to Isaiah, I've got a name for one of your kids. I'm going to name your kid. I want you to name him Shir Jashub, meaning a remnant shall return. God's saying, I'm going to punish you in my justice and in my holiness. And then in the same breath, he reassures him, I'm not done with you. I haven't washed my hands of you. And so Isaiah goes on there in verse 1 of chapter 9. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon, and the land of Naphtali. What on earth is he talking about? Well, the the people living in this area, the area around a little town that you might have heard of named Galilee, were being deported by Assyria. At that time, the cruelest and the most powerful nation in Israel's world. And what's really sad is this was mostly Israel's fault. This is because one of the Jewish kings during Isaiah's time, Ahaz, was looking to the earth. He was scared. (laughs) He was unwilling to go to God for help for all the nations around Israel that threatened them. And so against Isaiah's explicit warning, he goes to Assyria and he invites them into the region to try to police Israel's neighbors, which Assyria greedily accepted. It was like letting a fox in to guard the hen house. And now Jews in Zebulon and Naphtali are being deported to Assyria the allure of false refuge becomes the cause of their displacement. 
And this loss was doubly painful for an Israelite because losing their homeland and losing their ethnic identity was actually tied to God's fulfillment of his covenant promises to them as a people. This was like losing your wedding ring, but a thousand times worse. This wasn't just their land. It was the land God gave them. And he gave it to them as a symbol and a sign of all that he was going to continue to do to protect them and bless them for all time. And now he's taking them out of that promised land. But then Isaiah goes on in verse one. But in the latter time, He's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So there's a little hint here from Isaiah that the place of deportation, the place of exile that tempts people to question if God's forgotten his covenant promises to them is going to be the exact place where God's going to ultimately fulfill all of his promises to them. Look at verse two. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, good news on them has light shone. You might recognize this language because it's quoted in the fourth chapter of Matthew's gospel. And we see there in Matthew four, starting in verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, notice, in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali. And in a stunning turn of phrase to his readers, Matthew can say, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Isaiah says that was about this. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned in the person of Jesus. And it was from that time that Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. Light has done. This is 700 years after Isaiah wrote these words in verse 2 of chapter 9. The true and better king Jesus comes out of his wilderness temptation, kicks off his public ministry in the very place where Isaiah's fellow Israelites were being deported because of the unfaithfulness of all their other kings. In the midst of a people who stopped trusting God are looking to the earth Isaiah says, chapter 8, verse 17, I will wait for the Lord, who's hiding his face from the house of Jacob, yes, but I'm still going to hope in him. God's told him why he's hiding his face, but he hasn't given up on his rescue plan because his rescue plan comes out of his heart, not because these people have ever earned anything good from him in the first place. Deuteronomy 7, God made this abundantly clear to them in case they were ever confused. Hey, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. It was the opposite, in fact. You were the fewest of all peoples. (laughs) It's because the Lord loves you and he's keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. I love you because I love you. Through another prophet, Ezekiel, 
God says in Ezekiel 39. I'm not always going to hide my face from you, but something significant's got to happen first. Ezekiel 39, 29. I will not hide my face anymore from them when, notice, when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Don't give up hope. You're not going to live forever in this agonizing cycle of rebellion and exile and repentance and restoration to the land and rebellion and exile. But it's only when I finally someday pour out my spirit on you that the cycle is going to stop. God's saying, how could that cycle continue if I pour my spirit out on you? Because how could you ever be sent away from God's place when you permanently become God's place? We spend a lot of time and money and energy and emotions trying to conjure up and capture the spirit of Christmas. What Isaiah is driving at is that if you're here today and that feeling of homelessness is killing your Christmas spirit, the testimony of all the scriptures is that the spirit of Christmas is the spirit of Christ. Through Jesus, the spirit takes up permanent residence in his people. The spirit of Christmas is the spirit of Christ. And so Isaiah is pointing to the day when through Jesus, the Spirit will take up permanent residence in people. This is what Jesus told us would happen in John 14 when he said, I'm going to ask the Father. He's going to give you another helper. When I ascend back to my Father, I'm not going to leave you worse off than when I found you. He's going to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world can't receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him. Why? For he dwells with you and he will be in you. The spirit of Christmas is the spirit of Christ. Now, another feeling that can kill the Christmas spirit is what I might call helplessness. It's an overwhelming feeling of helplessness. Maybe you're here today and you just feel stuck, <laughs> you feel addicted in a rut, soul sick, like you've been living on junk food, sort of low-grade nausea and reactivity and paralysis, helplessness. And to the helpless, Isaiah offers hope of deliverance. But notice how he does it. Look again at verses three through five. He says, you've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they're glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian. For the boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Isaiah's talking about the future in the past tense. That's a poetic way of saying just how certain God's coming deliverance is. You can bank on it so much, we can talk about it like it's already happened. Verse three, you have multiplied the nation. They rejoice before you. The yoke of his burden, you have broken. The people are being crushed 
by Assyria. And so in that moment with Assyria's boot on their neck, it's really hard to believe God's promises aren't being pulled away from them when they're right in the middle of being punished. And so God says, hey, let me, let me remind you of two banner moments in my history with you. Verse four, as on the day of Midian. And Isaiah's first listeners would immediately know that God was talking about how he once scooped up this reluctant and goofy guy named Gideon in Judges 7 and 8 and used him to deliver them from the Midianites. And Gideon marches off to battle with 32,000 soldiers and then God sends all of them but 300 guys home. (laughs) So there would be zero confusion about who's winning the battle. They hide torches under clay pots They shatter them in the night after sneaking up on the enemy's camp. God sends the enemy camp into chaos, and a profound victory is won that day. So the people would have gone, oh, I see what you're doing. I see what you're doing here, Isaiah. I'm in so much pain I can barely breathe, and you're trying to capture my imagination by reminding me, just like Isaiah 9, into darkness, this bright light of God's deliverance shone when they shattered those clay pots. Just like Isaiah 9, God worked this improbable victory against seemingly impossible odds. Just like Isaiah 9, through Gideon, God liberated this exact area of Naphtali that's now being emptied by exile. So Isaiah is saying, it's not just that God's delivered you from this kind of thing before, but he actually delivered you in this exact place before. Notice again verse four. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken. He's reminding them of how God led them out of exile in Egypt in the first place. They were enslaved as an entire nation. They were put to work on grueling building projects. They were bearing the yoke. They were being beaten with a staff across their shoulder. They were stuck under a cruel oppressor. All of these words would have been pegs to hang memories on for Isaiah's listeners. And his point is, God didn't forget you in Egypt. He's not going to forget you in Assyria. The confidence that God's going to rescue you today comes from the knowledge that God rescued you yesterday. But we forget. And part of our forgetting is not just a cognitive absence of mind that something happened. But it's the kind of forgetting that's actually failing to connect the dots between that day and this day because today feels different. Or the depression feels deeper. Or the threat feels scarier. Or this feels more like something we brought on ourselves. So therefore, we're much less worthy of asking him to bail us out again. So if that's your story here today, this is an opportunity for you to stop and let God, like he did through Isaiah to his old covenant people, gently remind you, hey, when have I ever dropped you? When have I ever related to you on the basis of what you deserve? (laughs) We've come to a God who's in the business of not merely making his home with the guilty, but also helping the guilty say no to everything that made him guilty in the first place. He's the liberator. 
Contrary to what we might sometimes believe in the Bible Belt that's filled with religious people who know how to behave when others are watching, Christianity is not really for people who wrongly think they're self-reliant, who pride themselves on being so self-controlled. Christianity is for those who know they're inadequate and out of control and unable to cure themselves. They've learned this through hard experience. And so that breaks my heart. That misconception breaks my heart because there's actually some of you here today that are still exploring the claims of Jesus, but you feel pretty sure you don't have what it takes to call yourself a Christian or what you think a Christian is because you look at your life and there are things to which you're enslaved and you've resigned yourself that that's just who you are. It's unwelcome, but it's a permanent part of your story, so you can probably come and hang out and sort of peer in through the window, but you don't belong here. But that's not Isaiah's God. You can't make yourself clean in order to come to him. You come to him so he can make you clean. So if you're here today and your helplessness is killing your Christmas spirit, if you're wondering to yourself, what if I can't ever break free? The spirit of Christmas is the spirit of Christ. And Isaiah says through Jesus, the spirit unties people. That's what he does. Third and finally, nothing kills the Christmas spirit quite like the feeling of hopelessness. Hopelessness. Maybe you're here today and you're feeling this sense of unshakable dread. Maybe you've successfully walked away from a destructive past. But now you waste way too much time waiting for the other shoe to drop. You've always relapsed in the past. What makes you think this time's going to be different? What makes you think this Christmas season's going to be different? If we're honest, any glimmer of hope in our heart just starts to feel like a setup for a bigger punch in the gut that's coming. You look back at your life and you think about what authority figures or parents have said to you. You've always been a disappointment. Any progress you've made has always seemed to end up in a regression. Maybe you're trying to get your guts up to consider yourself a Christian, but then it just starts to feel like religious white-knuckling, and part of you assumes you're going to wake up one day to find out nothing's really changed after all. Maybe despair and resignation feel like close companions to you in this season. But in your hopelessness, Isaiah wants to offer up a picture of a person so compelling that he could ignite and protect from being extinguished a spark of hope in the hearts of even the most hopeless of people. Have you ever stopped and wondered what Jesus is actually like? Listen to what Isaiah says about him as he concludes in verses six and seven. For to us... A child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And it's the zeal of the Lord of hosts that'll do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And how long is it gonna last? Forevermore, he says, verse six, for to us, a child's born, to us, a son is given, and it's a sign that God's with you. The covenant is safe. Assyria is not stronger than God's promises. So Isaiah says in chapter seven, verse 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign that he hasn't forgotten you and he's not done with you. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Verse six, the government shall be upon his shoulder. Your shoulders, God says, I'm gonna lift off the burdens from your shoulders and the bondage from your shoulders because my servant's shoulders are broad enough to bear all the weight. And he's gonna graciously rule us as our servant king. That's why Isaiah can say in chapter 22, I'll place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And as good Jews who knew their Old Testament his followers would have known what he was getting at when Jesus said to them in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. God didn't just send a son as a sign, but even more a sign who would grow into a servant king. A king who would finally serve as a covenant mediator who doesn't break the covenant like Ahaz but keeps the covenant like nobody else ever has. It's like a marriage counselor who bats a thousand. Every couple that comes to him stays together. And this king's gonna be granted all the power and all the authority he needs to keep us from breaking the covenant and wandering off. But notice verse six, He's not just God's servant. He himself is God come in the form of a servant. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor could be literally translated a wonder of a counselor (laughs) or a wonder ruler, a miraculous, supernaturally gifted leader. The phrase mighty God gets taken up all throughout scripture in ways we might not expect. It's often used in contexts that speak of justice and impartiality. He has infinite power, but what's special about this king is he always wields his infinite power fairly to protect the poor and the defenseless. Deuteronomy 10, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great notice, the mighty and the awesome God, and what does he do? He's not partial. He takes no bribe. Everlasting Father speaks of the safety and the permanence of his reign as well as his fatherly concern and care and tenderness and discipline of his people. Prince of Peace, Isaiah concludes. Prince of Peace. In the Older Testament, 
Peace is often talked about in terms of personal fulfillment or well-being or harmony, even peace with God. And the verb form of the word peace in the Old Testament means to be whole or complete. So this prince is in himself, Isaiah is saying, whole. And he's at one with God and he's at one with his people and he gives all the benefits of peace and wholeness in the way he rules his people. Isaiah is saying, peace is a person before it's ever an experience or a state of mind. Behold the Prince of Peace. The good news that Isaiah is proclaiming for us this Sunday, listen to this, the good news that Isaiah proclaims is that Jesus is stronger than all the ways that you still fail and wander. If you're in Christ, but you still find yourself saying, How can God keep his promises to me when I've failed so many times, when it feels like failure is just around the corner yet again? Then you need verse seven. Notice, it's the zeal of the Lord of hosts that's gonna do this. This is the posture and commitment of the very heart of the infinite God. He's not the kind that lets go. He's the kind that sticks. It's who he is. So if you're here today and your hopelessness is killing your Christmas spirit, if you're thinking to yourself, won't I just wander off again? What makes me think this time will be different? The spirit of Christmas is the spirit of Christ. And Isaiah says through Jesus, the spirit tethers Jesus' people. He ties them to himself. He loses none of them. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So in conclusion, again, consider the fact that the word advent means coming. Jesus came so that all the sad things might begin coming untrue, and he's coming again so that they might be fully and finally made Untrue. Listen to what Isaiah goes on to say that Jesus is going to bring when he comes again in Isaiah 32. And let it whet your appetite and raise your affections and settle your heart in this season where our hearts are often so chaotic and turbulent. For the palace is forsaken. The populous city is deserted. Everything's in chaos. Notice, until the spirit is poured upon us from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. And the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the frightful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Stand with me as we pray. Lord, we thank you for this good news and how it meets us in all the places where we feel stuck and undone and discouraged. We offer this gratitude to you with hearts that are full of your good news. We say thank you for Jesus' sake. Amen.